0: Beginning with chapter 3 and verse 1, Colossians 3, 1 through 4. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. These verses form a a, a transition uh, in this book. Everything that has come before chapter 3, verses 1-4, through has been very theological, very doctrinal, um, very much teaching oriented so that we would understand truth. And everything that's going to come after these four verses is teaching oriented so that we would live out truth. So everything that comes in Colossians one and two, you might call doctrine and everything that comes in Colossians three and four after these verses, you might call action. Uh, And I just want to show you that briefly, uh, demonstrate it briefly in chapters one and two. There are 52 verses And there are only two commands, only two imperative sentences in those 52 verses. Two things where God says, do this in 52 verses. In chapter 3, just between verses 5 and 25, that's 21 verses, there are 14 commands. 14 imperative sentences. 14 places where God says, this is what you need to do. So we go from doctrine, truth about who we are and about who Christ is and who God is, to action, what we should be doing in chapter 3. And let me just demonstrate that another way uh, by reading to you uh, two different passages from these two sections to see where we've been and then where we're going. Look at chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Here is, here is truth. Here are the lofty mountain heights of truth about who, who God is who Jesus is in this particular passage. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. Let's continue. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. That's an amazing passage just packed with truth about Jesus, about who He is. But then when you get to chapter 3, the tone and the uh, intent of the writing changes. Look at chapter 3, verses 18-21, through just for an example. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. You see the difference from this truth-telling, this lofty preaching of chapters 1 and 2 about who we are and who Christ is and who we are in Christ to the nitty-gritty practical of chapters 3 and 4 where in four verses he has four commands for four different sets of people. And these are very practical things that have to do with everyday living. So there are two, two different things going on in Colossians. Great doctrine and then great practice or action. And the glue that holds these two parts of the book of Colossians together is this passage that we're looking at tonight, verses 1 through 4. It's like the ligament that spans the gap between two bones and holds them together so that they work together properly. So that chapters 3 and 4 are not disjointed from chapters 1 and 2. Who we are as followers of Christ in chapters 1 and 2 is... And how we live as followers of Christ in chapters 3 and 4 are not two unconnected types of things. They are very connected. They are inseparably connected. And that's what these verses are about tonight. In Paul's thinking, understanding what Christ has done for us, understanding who we are in Christ, makes all the difference in how we live. Chapters 3 and 4 would make no sense apart from chapters 1 and 2. And chapters 1 and 2 would make no sense apart from chapters 3 and 4. Right doctrine, right understanding of the Gospel is what enables right living. Or as we learn from chapter 2, verse 6, we walk with Christ in the same way that we first received Christ. He says, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. We receive Christ by faith and we walk in Christ by faith. Receiving and walking. Truth coming into us and truth being lived out of us are connected. And they're connected very clearly in Colossians 3, 1 and 4. And so what I want to do in Colossians 3, 1 and 4 is just ask two questions of it that I think will help bridge the gap between who we are and how we should live for God. The questions I'll ask, they could be who are we and how we should live, but I phrase them like this. What are the truths of the gospel? What are the truths of the gospel? Truths that we've been learning in chapters 1 and 2, truths that he's going to set forth briefly in these first four verses of chapter 3. What are the truths of the gospel? And second question, how do we walk by those truths? We're supposed to walk by the truth of the gospel. It's supposed to change the way we live. So, how does that work? Those two questions. What are the truths of the gospel? How do we walk by them? So, let's take number one first. What are the truths of the gospel? I'm going to answer it in four parts from verses 1 through 4, but you're going to notice that everything he says in verses 1 through 4 is a bit of a review of what he's just got done saying in chapter 2, mainly in verses 6 through 23. So tonight will be a look at verses 1 through 4 and a review of where we've been for the last three or four messages in Colossians. What are the truths of the gospel? They all start um, with an I or a mind. They're all... I've written them in the first person so that you could say them about yourself if you're a believer. Number one, all these from Colossians 3, 1-4. What's true of me? What's true in the Gospel? Number one, I've died with Christ. Verse 3, first part of the verse. For you have died. It's not the first in the order of the verses, but it's the first logically. What happened to us in the Gospel? We died with Christ. When Jesus was nailed to that judgment tree in some way in God's planning, looking ahead and knowing ahead, we were nailed to that tree with him. Our sinful flesh was nailed to the tree with Jesus. I am crucified with Christ, Paul will say elsewhere. And he's been talking about this death with Christ for several verses in chapter two. He said, first of all, that when we died with Christ, we became dead to sin's authority. Chapter 2, verse 11, he said, In Him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh, or the sin nature, by the circumcision of Christ. And the way that we've been describing that is, when we died with Christ, to put it bluntly, our sin nature was cut off. It was circumcised. We don't have to sin anymore. We have been become dead to sin's authority. Now our sin nature still is in us and fights against us, but it has been a dealt, dealt a death blow so that it cannot defeat us if Christ is in us unless we choose to let it defeat us. We are not under the authority of sin anymore. We have died to sin's authority. We've also died to sin's penalty. Chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus has canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Your sinful rap sheet, you put your life up against God's law and what you come out with is a rap sheet, decrees against you. Your sinful rap sheet and my sinful rap sheet in Christ has been expunged. It no longer exists. It was nailed to the cross, and as the song says, I bear it and you bear it no more. So sin doesn't have authority over us anymore, and sin's penalty is dead as well as it concerns those who are in Christ. So we could say with the first one, I don't have to sin any longer, and we could say here, God is not angry with me any longer. My rap sheet has been expunged. So we're dead to sin's authority and sin's penalty. We're also dead, we said last week, to legalism's tyranny chapter 2 verses 20 through 21 if you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world why as if you were living in the world do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle do not taste do not touch in Christ we are dead to legalism we no longer have to gain acceptance with God based on our performance when God looks at us and says how do i think about court He doesn't say any longer his performance has been really bad. What he says is he's dead. His sin is dead. He doesn't have to please me that way anymore because Jesus' performance has been really good on his behalf. So we are dead, first of all. We have died with Christ. To sin's authority, sin's penalty, and legalism's tyranny. But also we've been raised with Christ, he says in verse 1. What are the truths of the Gospel? I've died with Christ, verse 3, verse 1. I've been raised up with Christ. In the same way that I died with Christ, I was buried with Christ, and now I'm risen with Christ. I have a new life in Christ. I'm alive to a new way of living, a new way of operating. And we can look at those same areas that we just looked at where we were dead and just reverse them and find out how we are alive. We're alive to holiness. We're dead to sin's authority and now we're alive to holiness. Chapter 11 or chapter 2 verses 11 and 12 again. You were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. The death he's talking about there is a death to the sin nature. And so the life that he's talking about by implication is a life to a new kind of a nature. A nature that doesn't have to sin. A nature that wants to do what's right. A nature that is capable of doing what's right. A nature that says, I love the law of the Lord. Like David wrote verse after verse in Psalm 119. We're alive to holiness. We're now free to obey God, whereas before we were never free to do so. We're also alive to confidence. Confidence. Christians are confident people, not self confident people, but God confident people. Chapter 2, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. In Christ, I'm alive to forgiveness, and therefore I'm alive to relationship with God without fear. I can approach God boldly in Christ because I've been forgiven. And made alive in Him. So I'm free to obey God because I'm alive in Christ. I'm free to approach God because I'm alive in Christ. And then thirdly, I'm free to enjoy God. I have liberty in Christ. That's the third thing I'm alive to according to Paul. Verse 16, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. Things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In Christ, I don't have to go around like a Pharisee anymore. Making sure that I've done everything to please everybody and obeyed all God's rules and man's rules both. And then if I can do all of that, then I'm okay with God. No. I don't have to live like that. First of all, I live by God's rules alone and not by man's. And second of all, I know that I'm going to fail and when I fail, I have a Savior who will forgive me for failing. I don't have to be a Pharisee anymore. There's a lot of joy in being able to walk knowing that your Father forgives you for all your transgressions past and present and will do so again and again and again in the future. I have died with Christ to sin and legalism. I've been raised up with Christ to holiness and confidence with God and joy in God. Third thing, third truth about the Gospel is that my life, he says in verse 3, is hidden with Christ in God. My life is hidden with Christ and God. The word hidden uh, is a similar word or, or about the same word as the word secret in Greek. And I think what Paul means here is not that Christianity is a big secret or that being a Christian should be a secret, but what he means, I believe, is that Christ is the secret to living. You want to live abundantly? You want to live godly? You want to live truly? You want to really live then the secret is Christ. To live, Paul says elsewhere, is Christ. Or as he says in verse 4, Christ is our life. Christ is the secret to life. And we can just scan down again through the the verses we've just read in chapter 2 and see that, remind ourselves of it again. Christ is the secret to godly behavior. If we love God, we want to behave godly. And Christ is the secret to that. In Him, all the fullness, verse 9, of deity dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been made complete. He is the head over all rule and authority. In Him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were raised up with Him through faith in the working of God who raised Him from the dead. You see what he's saying there in those four verses? Christ has made me complete. And the way that he's done that is by killing my old nature and giving life to a new nature so that the way that I live can change. I don't have to keep living the way I used to live because Christ has died and I've died with him. And Christ is alive and I'm alive with him. And so I can behave like God wants me to behave. Finally, that's the secret. Know Christ and you can change. Christ is the secret to heaven. This is obvious and we know this. But when He says in verse 13 that He's made you alive together with Him and He's forgiven all our transgressions, what He's reminding us implicitly is that if we're forgiven and if we're alive, then finally we're fit for heaven. Without Christ, no one is fit for heaven. With Christ, we are fit for heaven. And there's no question that we're going there. So, Christ is the secret to godly behavior. He's the secret to heaven. He's the secret to a clear conscience. As we already read, He has taken this certificate of decrees that was against us. He's taken it and He's nailed it to the cross. Chapter 2, verse 14. So that the hymn writer wrote some of the, the best lines in any hymn that I know of. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Why can we praise the Lord with confidence? Because we know that Jesus has made a full payment. We don't have to add anything to it. We don't have to add our obedience to it. We don't have to add our church attendance to it. We don't have to add our deepest resolves to it. We don't have to have lots of great, wonderful Christian experiences to know that we are forgiven. We put our faith in Christ and our sins are paid for. Therefore, I don't have to beat myself up continually. And therefore, I have confidence that I really am God's child. Christ is the secret to Christian growth. You want to grow? Chapter 2, verses 18 and 19 reminds you how not to grow. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking a stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head. From whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. Christ is the key to growing. Christ is the head that He's talking about. It is from the head that the body grows. So I don't need, in verse 18, a seance in order to really become a devout, strong Christian. I just need, verse 19, a Savior. The head who causes me to grow. Who will help me become the man or woman God has called me to be. And Christ is the key in verses 20-21 through 21 of gladness. We already read those verses about these decrees, these self-abasing, self-depriving, ascetic type people that say the way to really be godly is to become a monk or to give up this and that and the other thing. And sometimes God calls us to give up things, but we're not to do it on our own, own initiative. And we're learning that we don't have to give up this or that. We don't have to deprive ourselves in order to be right with God. Jesus deprived Himself so that we could be right with God. And our job is to put our faith in Him. And therefore, we are free to enjoy God and His gifts. You can enjoy the weather. You can enjoy ice cream without having to feel bad about it because Jesus Christ has saved you and you don't have to save yourself by religious works Number four, final truth of the Gospel that he mentions in verses 1-4 through of chapter 3. I will someday be glorified with Christ. Verse 4, when Christ who is our life is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Now in Christ, as we've been saying, we have every spiritual blessing now in part. We have every spiritual blessing now in part, but when he is revealed, then the transformation will be complete. Then we will be revealed in our glory. This work that God has been doing in us to make us holy and to make us confident in him will finally be complete. I won't have to sin anymore when Jesus comes back. Isn't that great? The faith for heaven will finally be sight when Jesus comes back. The temptation to condemn myself because I fail again and again and again will forever be over when Jesus comes back. When He comes back, I will be like Him. You talk about spiritual growth in an instant. 1 John 3, 2. When He appears, we will be like Him. We'll grow, finally, fully. And when He comes, our joy will be made complete. This gladness that we are searching for in this life and that we experience tastes of through Christ will finally be complete. So who am I in Christ? Or what are the truths of the Gospel? Very quickly, I'm dead. Dead to sin. Dead to condemnation and death. Dead to the law. Who am I in Christ? I'm alive. Alive to holiness. Alive to confidence. Alive to liberty in the Gospel. Who am I in Christ? My life is hidden with Christ. The Gospel is the secret to abundant living, to authentic living, to holy living. Who am I in Christ? I am somebody who's waiting for his return when this dying and living will finally be completed. I'll finally be fully dead to sin and fully alive to God. The question that Paul is going to go on and answer for the next two chapters is what do I do? If this is who I am, what am I supposed to do? How do I live these truths out? These are great things that can be said about me, but I want to see them lived out. I want to see my life changed. So how do I do this? How do I walk by these truths? And the answer is in verse one, B and two. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. The more I think about it, the more I think this is one of the most important, or these are two of the most important verses in the Bible. If you want to know how to become a Christian, there are many places you can go. If you want to know how to live as a Christian, this is one of the best places you can go. How do you live as a Christian? Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. This comes at the beginning of two chapters that are chock full of commands about how to live the Christian life. And the very first command about how to live the Christian life is this. Set your mind on things above. Every command that's going to follow in chapters 3 and 4 and in subsequent weeks hinges on this one command. We cannot do the Christian life. We cannot do the things He's going to ask us to do unless our minds are set on things above. Wives will not submit to their husbands. Husbands will not love their wives. Children will not obey their parents if their minds are not set on things above. If you're always looking at earth, you're going to see lots of examples of how to do it a different way. This is the key to the rest of Colossians 3. This is the key to Christian growth, along with chapter 2, verse 6. And I think he's saying the same thing in both of these places, as we'll get to in a few moments. So we really need to get what Paul is saying here. If the key to Christian growth is setting our minds on things above, then we need to understand what does he mean by that? What does he mean by setting our mind on things above? Particularly, what are the things above? that we're supposed to be setting our minds on. He might mean, set your minds on good and noble, godly kinds of thoughts. The reason I think he might mean that is Philippians 4.8. eight says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent and if anything worthy of praise, think about such things. It would be good for you to write down and look at later. That might be what he means, but I don't think that's what he means here when he says set your mind on things above. He also might mean think about heaven and think specifically about the blessings that come in heaven so that you won't just spend your wealth on earth. Jesus says... Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. So when he says set your mind on things above, he might mean that as well. But I don't think that's exactly what he means either, although he would agree with that as well. Paul would agree with thinking about what is lovely and pure. Paul would agree with thinking about the rewards that come in heaven so that you don't waste your life on earth. And I don't believe either of those is what he means here. So why do I believe that? Why do I think he means something different than that? Mainly because of the phrase, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He doesn't just say set your mind on things above, period. Think about heaven and God in general. He gives us something specific about heaven That He wants us to think about. A specific scene in heaven, if you will. The scene we are to think about is the scene where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That's the specific thoughts that will help us grow, He says. Whatever it is that's happening where Jesus is, seated at the right hand of God, that's what we need to think about. Now the question is, what's happening as Jesus is seated at the right hand of God? What is happening? Lots of things are happening. Worship is happening. Lots of things are happening around that scene. But what's happening between the Father and His Son as they are seated there at the throne? Hebrews 7 and 8 tells us what's happening is is that Jesus is at His Father's right hand and what He's doing at His Father's right hand is interceding for us forever. He ever lives to intercede for us. That's what's happening at the right hand of God. Jesus is at the right hand of God, praying God's mercy towards us, pleading his merits on our behalf. If you will, holding out his nail scarred hands and saying, don't let that ransom sinner die as we sing. Every time we sin, Jesus is there reminding God, I died for that sin. I shed my blood for that sin. My body was broken for that sin. So she must, as another song says, she must and she shall go free. She can't be punished anymore. Remember God? Remember what I did? Remember what You did? Thank, thank You, God, that we can forgive them. That's what Jesus is doing at the Father's right hand. Reminding the Father of the truths of the Gospel reminding the father of the blood that was shed on our behalf and reminding the father of the promises that come to us through that shed blood that we are forgiven that we are children of God that we are reconciled with God that we are no longer slaves that's what Jesus is doing as he's seated at the right hand of God right hand of God and that's what Paul says we need to set our minds on that's the scene that will help you to grow Set your mind on that scene where Jesus is pleading the truth of the gospel on your behalf. As it were, preaching the gospel to his father. His father's the author of the gospel and he is reminding him, preaching it to him by interceding for us. That's what Paul wants us to fix our minds on. The phrase set your mind also could mean be concerned about, pay attention to. In essence, what Paul is reminding us to do here, or urging us to do, is to set our minds on the Gospel. Not to just think about heaven and how Granny's going to be there. Not to just think about heaven and how wonderful the seraphim are. Not to think about heaven and how the streets are gold and how huge it's going to be. All those things are wonderful and there's a time to think about that. But the main thing we need to think about heaven is Jesus is at God's right hand forever, forever, forever reminding Him of the Gospel That I must and shall go free. In essence, what Paul is doing is saying, set your minds on the truths that I've been expounding for you for the last two chapters and the last 20 minutes. Set your mind on the gospel. Or to say it the way that we said it a few weeks ago from chapter 2 verse 6, preach the gospel to yourself. That's what it means to set your mind on things above, to preach things above, to preach the gospel to yourself, to be constantly reminding yourself of what Jesus has done for you. Gospel is the key to Christian living. Gospel is what gives us motivation to obey God. It's what gives us ability to obey God. It's what gives us direction in obeying God if we're going to conform to the commands that Paul is about to lay out for us in these last two chapters, we have to believe and we have to live upon the gospel. Before we get to them, Paul wants to say then to us from these verses one last time, make sure you're ever reminding yourself of the power and the freedom and the forgiveness that are yours in the gospel. Then you'll be able to live as you ought. Now, a closing kind of two-part question for application's sake. How do we do that? How do we set our minds on things above? How do we constantly, persistently, faithfully preach the gospel to ourselves? So it's a two-part question, really a one-part question. How do we do that? How do we set our minds on things above slash preach the gospel to ourselves? And I want to give you, in closing, seven practical suggestions quickly. You would do well to write these down and even better to put them into practice every day. Number one, seven ways to preach the gospel to yourself. Number one. Set aside chunks of time away from your daily routine for meditation and reading of the gospel. I draw that out of chapter 3, verse 2, the second half of the verse, where he began with, Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on the earth. In other words, turn off the TV sometimes. Stop surfing the Internet all evening long. Put away the newspaper. Let the grass grow for an extra night. Let the dishes sit overnight and make your kids wash them tomorrow. Turn the Reds game off on the radio. Put put away your desires for all that overtime pay. Don't always be thinking about the things that are on the earth. I know we have to think about those things. We all have to cut our grass sometimes. We all have to read the paper if we want to know what's going on in the world. But don't waste your whole life just thinking about the things of the world. Have times where you set those things completely out of your view so that you can read or sing or meditate or pray about the Gospel. Very simple. Set aside chunks of time away from the things that are on the earth to think about and read about the Gospel. Secondly, make a commitment to regularly hear the Gospel. If you're going to preach it to yourself, you need to let others preach it to you. And I'm going to read to you uh, from a man named Terry Johnson, whom I've quoted before in a book called The Family Worship Book. Um, And I know I'm preaching to the choir when I read this. He's going to urge you to come to church, okay? You're here. And so I know that, but this bears repeating and bears reading and rereading and rereading. So I will read this and then we go on. Number two is make a commitment to regularly hear the gospel. He says, if you're not convinced that the whole of Sunday is the Lord's and not yours, you will not be consistent. You will inevitably allow other matters to interfere. Things will come up. Even the best of us will become three fifths Christians Three out of five Sundays we will be in church. The other two we will be out of town, watching a ball game, traveling, entertaining out-of-town guests, slightly under the weather, preparing for a busy Monday, out too late on Saturday, and so on. Let me challenge you. Count it up. You might be surprised at how much you miss. Though you see yourself as there every Sunday, even you miss two out of five. The first and primary key to your family's spiritual health is a commitment to the weekly public worship services of the church. The most important single commitment you have to make to ensure your family's spiritual well-being is to regular, consistent attendance at public worship. Sound far-fetched? I'll say it even stronger. I have yet to meet a person for whom it cannot be said that all his problems, personal, marital, familial, or vocational, would be solved by such a commitment. I do not believe that the person for whom this is true, not true, exists. By saying so, I do not minimize... the problems that people face. Rather, I maximize our confidence in the Gospel. So I'll say it again. We do not know of anyone of whom it could not be said if he were only here in worship week in and week out, 52 weeks a year, year after year, his problems would basically be solved. All I'll say to that is, be somewhere. If you're on vacation, be somewhere hearing the Gospel. Be here when you're here. Be somewhere hearing the Gospel Number, number three, these last five all come directly out of the book, The Cross-Centered Life, uh, in a section on preaching the gospel to yourself. And I couldn't um, improve upon them, so I just share them with you. The book's by C.J. Mahaney. It's in the, in the book rack, in the hallway, if you'd like to read it. Number three, memorize the gospel. Memorize passages that remind you of these great truths that Jesus is saying to his Father at the right hand. Maybe one of those truths is Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Maybe one of them is Colossians 2.13-14. and 14. When they were dead, father, in their transgressions and the circumcision of their flesh, You made them alive together with Me, having forgiven all their transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt of decrees against them, which was hostile to them, And you have taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Memorize something like that so you can preach that to yourself when you're struggling with condemnation. Memorize Romans 5.8. God demonstrates His love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Or Romans 6.5-6, which I don't have memorized, but I want to. If we have become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. When you're tempted to sin, if you can pull that out of your back pocket and say it to your sin nature, bam, you're free. I'm no longer a slave to sin because of what Jesus did for me. Therefore, sin nature, you can't make me look at that picture or say this thing that I really want to say. I'm free. You've got to memorize the gospel so you can pull it out at work or at school or wherever you may be and you don't have your Bible readily available. Number four, pray the gospel. What I mean by this is, and what he means by this, is not always only pray about the gospel, but when you pray, always bring the gospel into your prayer. The phrase in Jesus' name is not just a benediction at the end of a prayer, it's not just a mantra that, oh, they said it, okay, that counts. In Jesus' name means something like this. This is how I like to start my prayers sometimes. I wish every time. Father, I am not coming to you in my own merit. I don't expect you to hear because I've been good, because I haven't been good. But I expect that because I'm in Christ and He has been good and He has died on my behalf, that I can approach you boldly through Him. That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. That's how you should pray. Especially when you pray publicly. People learn from hearing you pray publicly. And many of you pray publicly, both on Wednesday nights and Sundays. And if you begin that way, everyone in the house knows, oh, he's not praying because he's one of the spiritual people in the church. He's praying because, just like I do, he has access to God only through the one mediator between God and man, namely Jesus. And just as another tidbit... I know maybe it's more familiar or or seems more personal to end your prayer with saying in your name, but it's really better to say in Jesus' name or in Christ's name so that you're reminding yourself that you're not doing this in the name of the Father who is the one who created you. Yes, you're doing it in a sense in His name, but you're you're coming to Him through Jesus, through the Son who died for you. So use His name and, and know what you're saying when you use it. Pray the Gospel. Make the Gospel a part of your prayer life. Five, sing the gospel. Get a hymn book. Get the little um, book that we put together of the songs that we sing most frequently here. Get some CDs that actually have good songs on them about the gospel and listen to them. Sing at home. Memorize songs. I want to say a, a word about songs that have the gospel in them. There are lots of good songs that we even sing here that don't really have the gospel in them. I'll give you an example. I love you, Lord. And I lift my voice to worship You. Oh, my soul, rejoice. Take joy, my King, in what you hear. May it be a sweet, sweet sound in your ear. That's number 212. We're going to sing it on Sunday. I don't think it's a bad song. But it doesn't tell you about the Gospel. And what you need most is the Gospel. What we need to sing most is the Gospel. And so if you're going to memorize songs... Memorize something that really points you to the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. There's a qualitative difference between I love you, Lord, and between something like I will glory in my Redeemer, whose priceless blood was shed for me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer. My life he bought. My love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. There's a difference between saying, I lift my voice to worship you, O my soul, and saying, my my sin hung you on that tree. Both of them are true. Both of them are great. But in the dying moment, you're going to want to remember that your sin hung Him on that tree and that you're free and that you're not banking your way to heaven on the fact that you love Him and want to worship Him. But that He loved you and enabled you to worship Him through His death. So sing the Gospel. Make sure it's the Gospel if you're going to only memorize a few songs Make sure they have the Gospel in them. Six, review how the Gospel has changed you. Remind yourself of your conversion experience and your growth in Christ since that time. One of the things Mahaney suggests, and I'm going to do it not this week, but next week, um, is he suggests that you write out your testimony just for yourself, not so you can pass it along to someone else, but just for yourself. And write it out not, I came to know the Lord in 1985. But I was a sinner in 1985, and I finally realized that my sins were so bad that I warranted hell and death. And that Jesus had paid for my sins. Do you see what the difference is? When you write your testimony, write the Gospel into it. So you can remember those truths that actually changed you and brought you to Christ. And remember that it wasn't just an emotional thing that happened on one Sunday morning. Review how the Gospel has changed you. And seventh, study the Gospel. Learn what the words, for instance, justification and redemption mean. Learn what reconciliation is or adoption or propitiation. These Bible words that are there richly for us to grow from. Learn what they mean. Study the truths of the Gospel. So, set aside chunks of time for the Gospel. Make a commitment to regularly hear the Gospel. Memorize the Gospel. Pray the Gospel. Sing the Gospel. Review how the Gospel has changed you. Study the Gospel. The summation of all of that is this, brothers and sisters. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the Gospel. On things above and not on the things of the earth. Father, I pray that our hearts would leave this place full of longing to review the gospel again and again and again. Christ is our life. Our lives are hidden with Him in you. The gospel and your Son who made it work are all that we have, all that we need for life and for godliness. So help us set our minds on the gospel. Help us preach the gospel to ourselves day after day after day for your glory. I pray it through your Son who purchased the right for you, for me to have my prayer heard.